0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, This is What We Preach, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April 16th, 2006, Easter Day. Three months ago, I stood alone in front of my mother's casket, at the Thomas Funeral Home in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina, a small town near Raleigh where our family moved in 1966. I twisted my neck so that my face would parallel hers. Hot tears streaked down my cheeks. My nose ran, my vision blurred. I caressed mom's wrist, but it was cold and stiff. Thanks to the mortician, she looked far better in death than in her last days of life. A spitting image of her own mother, our family agreed. But I knew that her better-than-life appearance was partly a death-denying cultural contrivance, designed to dull my pain and to distract my attention from the harsh reality that Mom was dead. No more Saturday morning phone calls to ask her about Duke basketball. No more annual visits for her May 20 birthday. And no more playing Scrabble in her tiny room. My mother's grandfather was a Presbyterian pastor in a small town in Ohio. And she herself was the organist and choir director in her own church from 1967 to 1992. Every Sunday morning, for the better part of 80 years, Mom joined Christians across the last 2,000 years and from around the world in confessing the Apostles' Creed that Jesus, quote, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. And a little later, The creed concludes, I believe in the resurrection of the body, and in life everlasting. Similarly, Paul wrote in the epistle for this week, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 11, This is what we preach, and this is what you believed. That's what my mom believed, and that's what I struggled to believe that January afternoon beside her casket. I take odd comfort in knowing that long before our contemporary skepticism, plenty of people dismissed the idea of the resurrection of the dead, both in general and of Christ's resurrection in particular. Only with our modern hubris, what the British E.P. Thompson once referred to in another context as the enormous condescension of posterity. Only with that modern hubris could we congratulate ourselves that whereas illiterate peasants in 33 AD were so gullible that they did not understand that corpses don't rise from the dead, we today know better. But the historical record shows that plenty of people disbelieved back then, including Jesus's own disciples. To me, the doubt of Jesus' closest followers and the disbelief by many of their contemporaries read more like a no-spin zone than a propaganda ploy. They lend an air of authenticity to the original Easter proclamation. After the crucifixion, the followers of Jesus responded in fear, confusion, ignorance, in disbelief. The women who took spices and perfume to the tomb that first Sunday morning went to anoint a corpse, not to witness a resurrection. When Mary Magdalene saw the empty tomb, she supposed that someone had stolen the body. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him, she cried. She wept and cried, they've taken my Lord away and I don't know where they have put him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where he is, and I will get him. when Mary Magdalene and several other women subsequently told the disciples that they had seen the risen Lord, we read in mark sixteen eleven they did not believe it. Luke renders it even more bluntly in luke twenty four verse eleven They did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense." That first Sunday night, the eleven disciples cowered behind locked doors, we read in John chapter 20, verse 19. And why not? It was not unreasonable for them to fear for their own lives. Later, two witnesses reported their encounter with Jesus to the eleven. But we read, "...they did not believe them either." and Jesus himself rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe. Mark chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. Thomas, of course, remained the most famous doubter. While in what might have been his last resurrection appearance, we read in Matthew 28, verse 17, that some doubted. Then, something happened. Luke writes that after Jesus suffered, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Acts chapter 1 verse 3. Somehow, way, the confusion of these unschooled and ordinary men gave way to their bold conviction that we read about in Acts 2.32. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are we are all witnesses of that fact. When commanded by the religious authorities to cease their preaching, Peter and John replied, We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Acts 4.20 They claimed that they had eaten with the resurrected Jesus and that many witnesses could attest to his public appearances. So we read, in Acts 4.33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. All this, mind you, would have screeched to a halt if someone had only produced a dead body. Some people believed the apostolic message, but others mocked and scoffed. The religious authorities were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. In addition to a burgeoning number of converts, the public witness provoked municipal violence and severe persecution that would last for three centuries. In Acts 7, Stephen was stoned to death, and in the next chapter, verse chapter 8, a general persecution in Jerusalem scattered the believers. A few chapters later, in Acts 12, 1 and 2, we read that King Herod arrested the believers, executed James, and imprisoned Peter. In Iconium, the people were divided, we read, about the message of Paul and Barnabas. In Lystra, Paul was stoned and left for dead while in Philippi he was imprisoned for throwing the city into an uproar. Riots erupted in Thessalonica when detractors complained that the disciples had caused trouble all the world over. At Athens, some believed Paul's preaching, but when others heard about the resurrection, we read in Acts 17.32, they sneered. Riots convulsed Ephesus, when many adversaries opposed Paul's entourage and there arose a great disturbance about the way there in Ephesus we read in Acts 1923 in Jerusalem of course only Paul's appeal to his Roman citizenship prevented death by mob violence but his arrest there sealed his fate Porcius Festus The Roman governor of Judea under Nero from 59 to 62 confessed that he was at a loss to know what to do with the prisoner Paul. They did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected, said Festus. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. The next day, as Paul gave his legal defense, Festus interrupted Paul and screamed, You're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you mad. Acts twenty-five nineteen to 20 and chapter 26, verse 24. Peter had to rebut charges that he followed, quote, cleverly invented tales, 2 Peter 1.16. And while Paul instructed Corinthians who insisted that, quote, there is no resurrection of the dead for anyone at all, 1 Corinthians fifteen twelve. So, there's hardly anything new about contemporary disbelief in the resurrection. I believe the first believers partly because of their chronicle of disbelief, their own and that of their detractors. To me, it rings true. They knew from firsthand experience that you cannot compel belief in the resurrection. True, they insisted that their message was, quote, true and reasonable, end quote, for the event- events they described were not done in a corner, Acts 26, verses 25 and 26, but instead could be corroborated and verified, at least at some level and for a few years. Still, their witness amounted to what Yaroslav Pelikan has called, oxymoronically, public evidence for a mystery. Paul raised the bar about as high as you can when he insisted that no person should believe a lie about the resurrection and that certainly no person should preach a lie about the resurrection. 1 Corinthians fifteen twelve 12-19 if Christ is not raised, said Paul, then Christian faith devolves into a cruel hoax. Paul, of course, died in Rome because of that conviction. In the end, according to Peter, we read in Acts chapter 4, verse 19, Judge for yourselves. As I looked at my mother's body, it was a short step from grieving her death fearing my own death, the Easter message is that I should do neither. The New Testament describes the person and work of Jesus in many ways, but nowhere more succinctly than in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in the slavery by fear of death. With that conviction that Christ harrowed hell, early believers anticipated what they called the universal restoration of all things. Acts chapter 3. Twenty-one. In that day, in the words of Isaiah's poetry for this week, Isaiah 25, verse 8, The Lord Almighty will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. My book review this week is of a book entitled, What Jesus Meant by Gary Wills, New York, Viking, 2006, 144 pages. In an earlier book called Papal Sin: Structures of Deceit, Gary Wills left readers wondering why he remained Catholic giving his unsparing criticisms of institutional Catholicism. He tried to answer that book He tried to answer that question two years later with another book called Why I Am a Catholic from the year 2002. With five books on St. Augustine and a book called Lincoln at Gettysburg that won the Pulitzer Prize, Gary Wills remains one of our country's most important public and outspokenly Christian intellectuals. Today he is Professor of History Emeritus at Northwestern University. In this shorter, more popular book, which he describes as devotional, Wills reaffirms his robust Christian faith. In a note about his own translations of the Greek New Testament for this book, Wills advises that he's trying to recapture what he calls the rough-hewn majesty in brutal linguistic earthiness of the Koine Greek in which the Gospel story was originally written. In contrast to classical Greek, and to the over-familiar and churchly idiom of so many translations, this is important because throughout the book, Wills quotes large portions of scripture, and his sometimes awkward trend- renditions help us hear afresh the radicality of the message. In fact, Wills is also trying to recapture the radically subversive life, teaching, and Death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Quote, Jesus intended to reveal the Father to us and to show that He's the only begotten Son of that Father. What He signified is always more challenging than we expect, more outrageous, even more egregious. End quote. Wills describes Jesus as a homeless man of the margins anything but respectable. And if he was not the God-man that he claimed to be, then he was clearly a blasphemer or a lunatic. Wills excoriates Thomas Jefferson's scissored-down Jesus, who was little more than a mild humanitarian moralizer. In the more recent Jesus Seminar scholars, what he calls the New Fundamentalism, who end up with a bland cardboard cutout. I think Wills is right the search for the so-called original Jesus has strict limits. Even if scholars found the true and original Jesus behind the biblical texts, he would be more incomprehensible, not less. In eight brief chapters, Will surveys the life of Jesus. He starts with Jesus as a child and concludes with the resurrection accounts. For Wills, Jesus is a sign of contradiction and a threat to political power, who in his salvation mission as the Son of God took up the burden of all humankind. He inaugurated the reign of God. In Wills's reading, Jesus is a radical egalitarian who saved his harshest criticisms for those who wanted to exercise spiritual authority over others. He regularly broke religious rituals, mocked external purity, and violated social taboos to demonstrate that God, in his lavish and indiscriminate love, never excludes people because they are unclean, unworthy, or unrespectable. Quote, no outcasts were cast out far enough in Jesus' world to make him shun them, end quote. That, for Wills, includes Judas. In short, tremendous ingenuity has been expended to compromise these uncompromising words, says Wills. Jesus is too much for us. In this slender volume, he intends to deny that option to anyone who would trim, trivialize, or domesticate the Son of God. Gary Wills, What Jesus Meant For film this week, I review Walk the Line, from 2005. As with the movie Ray, I would think that it would be difficult to make a dull film about such a larger-than-life figure as Johnny Cash. Beginning with the trauma-inducing death of his brother Jack in rural Arkansas, his overbearing father who blamed him for his brother's death, a tour in Germany with the Air Force where he wrote his first song, and his self-destructive addictions, the film takes us to Johnny Cash's eventual marriage proposal to June Carter on stage in Canada. Carter and her parents, for all practical purposes, saved Johnny Cash's life and his career. Both Joaquin Phoenix and Reese Witherspoon, who won an Oscar for Best Actress for her performance, sing Cash's songs. There are no voiceovers or lip syncs here. My only disappointment with the film, like the film Ray, is that it ends while Cash is still a young man. He only got better with age. Others have complained that the film makes almost no mention of Cash's rather outspoken and explicit Christian faith. But these are minor quibbles about a good film, about a great man, and musician. Walk the line from the year 2005. And finally, for poetry for this Easter Sunday, we've posted a poem by Mary Ann Bernard called Resurrection. Long, long, long ago, way before this winter's snow first fell upon these weathered fields, I used to sit and watch and feel and dream of how the spring would be when through the winter's stormy sea she'd raise her green and growing head her warmth would resurrect the dead long before this winter's snow I dreamt of this day's sunny glow and thought somehow my pain would pass with winter's pain and peace like grass would simply grow but the pain's not gone it's still as cold and hard and long as lonely pain has ever been it cuts so deep and fear within long before this winter's snow I ran from pain looked high and low for some fast way to get around its hurt and cold I'd have found if I had looked at what was there that things don't follow fast or fair, that life goes on and times do change, and grass does grow despite life's pains. Long before this winter's snow, I thought that this day's sunny glow, the smiling children and growing things and flowers bright were brought by spring. Now I know the sun does shine that children smile, and from the dark, cold grime, a flower comes, it groans, yet sings, and through its pain, its peace begins. Mary Ann Bernard, Resurrection Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Easter Day, Sunday, April 16th. 2006. And please join us every Monday for an essay, book review, film review, and poem. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.